John chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 60 through 71. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning that those who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. John chapter 6 is one of the most amazing chapters in the Bible, in my opinion. In it, we have the famous feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus multiplies five loaves and two fish and provides lunch for thousands and thousands of people. And then after that, he sends his disciples out into the sea, out into a storm, and then he walks on water. And then he preaches to the people, and he proclaims that he is the bread of life, saying that whoever comes to him will not hunger, and whoever believes in him will never thirst. This is amazing. This is one of the most amazing chapters in the Bible. It's a powerful chapter in John's gospel, and Jesus' popularity right now is at its peak. He has thousands of people following after him, going from one end of the sea to the other to hear him. And yet, in our text this morning, we see many turn back and no longer follow him. Jesus starts with 12 disciples and then grows that into the equivalent of a mega church that could meet in the Allstate Arena. And all these people are following him. And by the end of this chapter, he only has 11 true disciples. This is one of the chapters that church growth experts leave out of their books. What happened? What's going on here in the text? Well, for those of you who are taking notes this morning, I've divided the text up into three sections. So in verses 60 to 66, we will see a hard saying. A hard saying. 
In verses 67 to 69, we will see a beautiful confession. And in verses 70 and 71, we will see a sober warning. And just so you know, my first point is going to be a lot longer than the last two because I'm covering more verses. So don't get nervous. But again, it's a hard saying, a beautiful confession, and a sober warning. And the main point, which I hope you see in the text this morning, is this. True disciples receive the hard words of Jesus and confess that he has the words of eternal life. True disciples receive the hard words of Jesus and confess that he has the words of eternal life. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone and you thought that they were on the same page with you, but but after a while you realize, oh wow, we aren't on the same page. They're agreeing with what you're saying, but as you're speaking, you, you, you think, man, they must be hearing something else or maybe not even listening close enough to what I'm saying. And at the point in this conversation, you have two choices. You can either continue on acting like you guys are on the same page or say some words, maybe some hard words that confront that person and explain to them, you really aren't on the same page with me. That's what Jesus is doing here in John chapter 6. Jesus uses hard words here not to be misunderstood, but because it was the only way for the people to understand that they didn't understand. They were coming to him, following him for the wrong reasons. And so he clarifies who he is, what he has come to do, and what they need to do in order to have eternal life. Last week, we looked at the sermon that Jesus preached in the synagogue. He pointed out the sins of the people. They were coming to him for the wrong things, for physical and material needs, and not their spiritual needs. The food that perishes, not the food that endures to eternal life. And so Jesus called the people to come to him, to believe in him. And in this sermon, he taught about his incarnation, that he was God in the flesh. We saw that in verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He also taught about the necessity of his atoning death. In verse 51, he says, and the bread that I, that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This pointed what he was going to do at the cross, to die in the place of sinners as their substitute. His atoning death, his, his body, his flesh nailed to the tree. He also taught about the necessity of saving faith. In verse 53, he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And we saw last week that Jesus isn't telling people to be cannibals, right? He's speaking metaphorically. He's calling people to believe in him. In order to have eternal life, you must come to him. You must believe in him. As bread is necessary for physical life, Jesus is necessary for eternal life. And Jesus also taught the sovereignty of God in salvation. 
In verse 44, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So after this sermon, John writes in verse 60, When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now, when we hear that we're disciples, we automatically think of the 12 disciples that that Jesus called to follow him. But that's not who uh, John is talking about here. John is referring to a, a different group, a larger group who followed Jesus, probably because of the miracles that he was performing and the things that he was saying. John distinguishes these disciples from the 12. You see that in the text. And in fact, we see different responses between these so-called disciples and the 12. When this larger group of disciples heard what Jesus said, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But that word for hard here in the Greek doesn't mean that Jesus' teaching was difficult to understand, but that it was simply hard to accept. They understood what Jesus was saying intellectually, but they hated what they heard spiritually. It wasn't hard to understand, but it was hard to receive. It was hard to embrace to accept it and to live by it. Look at your Bibles. Verse 41 says the Jews grumbled. Verse 52, they disputed. And then in verse 60, the disciples say, who can listen to it? And in 61, they grumbled among themselves. There's this progression as people sit and listen to the word of God. As they hear Jesus, the greatest preacher there ever was as they sit and listen to God himself, they say, who can listen to it? And in fact, a a better translation would be, who can listen to him? How could they not want to receive the words of life? He has explained that we are all sinners, but he has come to take away our sin. He has come to give life. And they say, this is a hard saying. And they don't even talk to Jesus directly here. Right? We see that in verse 61. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Jesus knew that they were grumbling behind his back. I don't know if you guys are grumbling behind my back. But Jesus knew. And so he asked this question. Are you offended? Because he knew that they were. But why? Why were they offended? Because his words explained that no amount of good works could save them. Chapter (laughs) 6. Man in sin is so lost that only the death of the Son of God in his place can save. That's the gospel. Tim Keller once explained it this way. It would be sort of like a friend who comes to you and he gives you a book about how to make friends. 
And what that friend is trying to say to you is that you're not good at making friends. That would be an insult to you. And when Jesus comes and tells you that you are a sinner and that you cannot save yourself, but that he has come and is going to the cross, he's saying to you, you're not good enough. He's pointing out your weakness. And his words become offensive. By nature, our depraved hearts don't want to hear, there's nothing you can do. By nature, our depraved hearts don't want to hear, you need the one who did everything for you on the cross, and all you need to do is come to him and believe in him. The gospel reveals the depth of our need and our total inability to save ourselves. Man is nothing but a beggar with his hands out, hoping to receive the bread of life. And so by nature, all people hate the message of Christ crucified. The sweetest message, the sweetest message that anyone could ever hear is at the same time the most offensive. J. Gresham Machen said, He is our Savior, not because he's inspired us to live the same kind of life that he lived, but because he took upon himself the dreadful guilt of our sins and bore it instead of us on the cross. That's what Jesus did. And this is an offense to natural man whose pride is always to do something to earn God's approval. And Jesus is not just a way to salvation. Jesus is the only way to salvation. And so you must look to him in faith or perish in your sins. Those are the only two options we have. And then in verse 62, Jesus says, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Not only did Jesus come down from heaven and give his life for the sins of the world, but he was going to raise from the grave and ascend back to heaven. And he's addressing this because some of the people had a problem with him saying that he had come from heaven. Earlier on in chapter 6, they said, isn't this Joseph and Mary's son? They couldn't believe his claim that he had come down from heaven. So Jesus says, what would you say if I went back up to where I was before? What if you were to see that? And then he continues to teach using hard words. Look at verse 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. And then John gives us this. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. 
The Spirit gives life. Whatever you try to accomplish in your flesh will never help you attain spiritual life. You cannot save yourself. It is the Spirit who gives life. All of us outside of Christ are spiritually dead. You remember what Jesus teaches Nicodemus in in chapter 3? What he says to him? He says, you must be born again. And just like you were born physically, there was nothing you did to be born. You couldn't will yourself to to life. And so the same is true of those going from spiritual death to spiritual life. You cannot will yourself. You cannot work to go from spiritual death to spiritual life. You must be born again, born from above. But there's something within us that desires to contribute to our salvation, to earn it. And yet the reality is the fact that we are all utterly dependent on God. Jonathan Edwards is famous for saying, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. It is the Spirit who gives life. He comes and he takes the word and he softens your heart of stone and he opens your eyes to see Jesus for who he truly is. The Spirit gives life to those who are dead in their sins. And this is the confidence that we have, right? In our ministry. That's the confidence that we have in our own hopes for spiritual growth. It's the confidence that we have in our witnessing and evangelism. We preach the gospel in all its offensiveness because we know that God the Father has chosen sinners to salvation. We preach the gospel in all its foolishness because we know that Jesus Christ has died to redeem his people. And we preach the gospel boldly because we know that the Spirit is at work bringing life through the Word of God. How does the Spirit make us alive? He does it through the Word. He does it through the Word. Jesus says, the words that I speak are spirit and life. Have you found his words to be life? Have you? We're born again. We become spiritually alive by the living and abiding word of God. The words of Christ come to the person who is dead in sin, and the Spirit gives life upon the hearing of that word. And that's why the word of God must be central in all that we do. It must be central in our evangelism. It must be central in our worship gatherings, and it must be central in our everyday lives. The the scriptures, the words of Christ are spirit and life. Jesus' words are meant to produce eternal life in people, and yet they turn others away because they don't want to hear. 
Verse 64 says, Jesus knew from the beginning who wouldn't believe. Here's John reminding us of the deity of Christ. He knew the whole time. He knew everyone who was going to believe. He knew everyone who wasn't going to believe. He even knew who was going to betray him. This was not a shock to Jesus. He knew. He knew that the 5,000 were going to leave. They refused to believe. And many of these people were religious people. And Jesus says again and again, you must believe in me. You must eat this bread. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. This is a personal faith. Salvation doesn't come to you because you attend church or because you believe in the Bible or because your parents are believers or your friends are believers. You have to have a personal dealing with a personal Savior. And you must see your sin and see your need of saving from that sin. And belief in Jesus is the only way. He is the bread of life. And so if you don't believe in him, you will die in your sins and suffer the wrath of God. That's what God's word says. You must believe in Jesus Christ or suffer for your sins. And in verse 65, Jesus repeats what he had said before. And why does he repeat the hard saying? Right? Is he like some people that we encounter online who just love saying things that upset other people? There's a lot of people like that online. No, Jesus isn't like that. That's not what he's trying to do. He is saying, look, all of you are offended by what I said about eternal life. You don't believe, and I know that. And that proves what I said earlier. No one can come to me unless the Father gives you faith. The Apostle Paul will say the same thing in Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Faith is not something that we contribute to God, but faith is something that God gives to us as a gift of grace. And then we get to verse 66. This is one of the saddest moments in the Bible. Jesus speaks the words of life. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. While these are hard sayings, and they do confront us, we all struggle in one way or another with trying to earn God's favor. And many turn away when they hear these words. But brothers and sisters, these are the words of life. These are the words of Life, they may be hard to swallow at times, but these are the words of Jesus. James Montgomery Boyce wrote this, so long as Christ's followers could not 
understand him, they stayed around and they asked questions. It was when they did understand him that they went elsewhere. They left because what they heard was so contrary to their own views that they would not accept it. You got to keep in mind, these are the same people the day before who traveled all the way around the lake, who saw him multiply the bread and the fish, who said, You are the prophet who wanted to make him king. And the next day they leave. There are many people in the church today who call themselves Christians, and yet they act the very same way. They say they're loyal to Jesus until they hear him teach certain things, and they don't like it and they leave. In Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And so we must come with the attitude of the psalmist in Psalm 25 and say, Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. To approach Jesus and his words the wisdom from Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Sadly, many people who claim to be Christians don't approach Jesus and his word this way. Instead, they approach him with their own understanding. They approach him with the morality of this world and make comments like, this is an outdated book. Yeah, it might be helpful, but it shouldn't be the rule of your life. And this was true of the crowd in Jesus' day. They saw Jesus, God in the flesh. They heard him speak these words of life. And yet they rejected his teaching. The line between false and true disciples is always drawn by the teaching of biblical truth. Paul warned Timothy that this would happen. He says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, people will not endure sound teaching, but having itchy ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth. And so what will you do with Christ's words? Will you listen to them, allowing the Holy Spirit to bless you through them, or will you turn away? If we were there in that synagogue and saw thousands of people walking away, what would you do? That mob mentality thing is real. What would you do? This was a turning point. From this time, many disciples turned back and no longer followed Jesus. And at this point, Jesus turns to the 12. He says in verse 67, do you want to go away as well? 
Some people have looked at this verse and made this observation that Jesus saw a lot of his disciples leave and he turns to the 12 for comfort. And while I can see why people think that way, I don't think that's what happened. I don't think that's what John is trying to communicate here in this passage. Jesus isn't asking the 12 this question because he needs anything from them. We've just saw in the previous verses that he knew right from the beginning who who would believe and who would not believe. But the disciples needed Jesus to ask them this question. Think about how strong that temptation would be to follow the crowd at this moment. Imagine the social pressure they felt. And thinking in the back of their minds, we gave up everything for this man. And now a crowd, probably thousands of people, just up and leave. And obviously, Peter speaks up. Speaking on behalf of the disciples, he says in verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Wow. What a beautiful confession. To whom shall we go? Peter has thought things through. He's thought about the other teachers, the other rabbis. He's thought about the other teachings that that were going on in the day, and he came to the conclusion that we should all come to. There is no one else. And this doesn't mean that Peter wasn't struggling with Jesus's hard sayings. But he recognized that there was no alternative for salvation. And unlike the crowds, the true disciples saw Jesus for who he truly was, even in the signs that he performed. Peter and these disciples knew that Jesus, who was able to feed thousands with a few fish and a few loaves, is also able to meet the needs of our souls. There is no one else. Peter will proclaim later on in the book of Acts, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter had just heard Jesus say that. He's learning and processing these things in the moment. But this is a confession that can only come from a heart that has been redeemed by grace. So this morning, if you are tempted to turn back, if the pressures of the world and the flesh and the devil are upon you, if you're tempted to backslide, think about the alternative. Think about your life without Jesus. To whom will you go? What else is there? And then Peter also confesses, we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You are the Christ. You are the Redeemer, the long-awaited Savior. And even if all the others go away, where would we go? There is no one else. Maybe Peter had Psalm 73 in his mind, where the psalmist says, whom have I in heaven but you? 
and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Have you ever come to the place in which you have said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. That's a confession of faith. A beautiful confession. Absolute dependence on Jesus. But Jesus' response to Peter in verse 70 is a little unusual. Right? You would expect him to say, yeah, Peter, you got it. Or maybe flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. But that's not how Jesus responds. Look at what he says in verse 70. Jesus answered them right after this beautiful confession. This is what Jesus says. Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. There's some irony going on in the situation, right? Peter had said, we believe and we know, but Jesus knows the hearts of men. And he tells the 12, you may not believe it now, but one of you is a devil. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7 says, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Even in the group of Jesus' closest followers, there is one who did not believe and who would betray Jesus. John writes in verse 71, he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. These words here from Jesus make the point that Judas never believed in Jesus. And when Jesus says, I, you know, I chose you, the 12, he was not saying, I chose you etern to eternal life. He's talking about earthly discipleship. And all along, Jesus knew that Judas was not truly one of his followers. Yes, Peter gave that beautiful confession of faith, speaking on behalf of the group, but Jesus was concerned. He was concerned as he saw the crowds walking away, knowing what that might have done in the hearts of his disciples. And then he was thinking about the potential harm and damage it would do eventually when they would see Judas betray him. One theologian said, it's often false believers in the church that do more damage than enemies outside. Enduring to the end is by grace. But there's always going to be those in the church who look like true Christians and they fall away. I'm sure some of you, most of you in this room know of someone who looked like a Christian, who was in the church, who was serving, and yet later on in their life, they rejected Jesus. When you have someone you loved and you trusted and they abandoned the faith, it's very painful. It causes deep wounds and confusion. So Jesus speaks these words to his disciples. 
to, in a way, give them a heads up. But then we may ask the question, why did Jesus choose Judas then? Right? He was the one who chose them. Why did he choose Judas? A.W. Pink, who's got an incredible commentary on the Gospel of John, has many paragraphs dedicated to that. But I just want to point out a couple reasons, two reasons. First, the scriptures foretold it. Jesus says in John chapter 17, While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name that you gave me. He's talking about the disciples. And then he says, None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Jesus was pointing back to Psalm 41, verse 9, which says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Jesus chose Judas so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. And also Jesus chose Judas to give sinners a sober warning. Pink writes, The example of Judas shows us how near a man may come to Christ and yet be lost. Those who put on religious airs and frequent the church but who do not yield their hearts to Jesus are in the gravest peril. This moment in the disciples' lives gave them a sober warning. And it should be a sober warning to all of us as well. J.C. Ryle said, Judas heard all of Jesus' sermons. He saw all the miracles. He went and cast out demons in his name. He preached the gospel. He was a close friend of the disciples, and he was trusted with the money box. This is a sober warning. It's necessary that you believe in Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like Judas. I know that's hard. (laughs) But maybe you are. You've been raised in like a godly home. You've heard good preaching. You've seen others around you believe, but you have not believed personally. Their faith will not save you. Don't allow your proximity to the church and other believers cheat you out of the faith that the only one who can save you is Jesus Christ. Not your works. Not your proximity to the church. Not the faith of your parents. Jesus knew all along that Judas was going to betray him. Which means that he knows the truth of everyone's heart today in this room. And so we need to examine ourselves this morning. Truly examine yourself. Who are you in this passage? Would you be with the multitude who turned away? Would you be with Judas playing the part but not really believing? Or would you be with Peter, who confesses this beautiful confession? 
Are we prepared to stay with Jesus no matter how often he offends our culture? No matter how often his words bring persecution upon his people? Do you recognize that Jesus is the Holy One of God, the Redeemer, the Savior, the Promised One? We need the flesh and blood of Jesus more than we need anything. And it's my prayer this morning that we would confess along with Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. He is the bread of life. He has life in himself. He has the words of eternal life. Brothers and sisters, this is our hope. Anyone who looks on the Son and believes in him will have eternal life and Jesus himself will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is the one with the words of eternal life. There's no one else who can help us. So let us praise God that he is the one who gave us to Jesus, who drew us to Jesus and gave us life by the Spirit through the words of Jesus. True disciples receive the hard words of Jesus and confess that he has the words of eternal life. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that your words are spirit and life. And we long to have a deeper understanding of them. In this passage, many struggle to accept the truth that you, the bread of life, had come down from heaven. Help us to have a heart that is open and willing to receive the truths that come from you. We pray that you would not, that we would not turn away when things get difficult or when your teachings challenge us. We pray that you would strengthen us in our faith and that we would remain steadfast and believe in you even when many others turn away. Soften our hearts. Give us a greater love for the Savior. He is the only one that we can flee to. He is the only one that has words of eternal life. And if there are any that are here today that do not know you, we pray that today would be the day of salvation. We pray that your spirit who gives life would cause those who are dead in their sins to come alive and Lord, that you would empower us to live out the truth that we have come to know. Give us a strong desire to be in your word and to obey it. We thank you for speaking to us this morning through it. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.